passage this morning as we continue to worship God together is found in Titus chapter 1. Please turn there with me if you're able. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 6. We're picking up again in our series through Titus and uh, today we kind of get to the business of the letter, some of the logistical business. It's not quite as exciting as what we've been looking at um, the past few months, but this is very important, and we need to slow down and hear these words. We are, of course, in the process of preparing to call and examining Rob as an additional elder, and so these next five verses are very important. I'm going to slow down from my normal pace and probably take two, maybe even three Sundays to work through these five verses here in Titus 1, beginning in verse 5. So we'll focus on 5 and 6 today, but I'll read down through verse 9 for the sake of context. Brethren, this, remember, is God's Word. Hear it and receive it as such. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above approach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Let's pray again together. Our Heavenly Father, Eternal Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, we hear these words and we know they concern the order and the beauty of Christ's church, the the bride of Christ, the, the bride which He purchased with His own blood. Father, our prayer then now as we come to these words is that You would give us wisdom to discern and to apply these truths, that You would give us the Holy Spirit to lead us into the path of life. Lord, that that through our knowledge and understanding and grasp of these words by faith, that Christ's church may be strengthened and beautified to bring glory of Your name. We pray that You would bless us and grant us Your favor even during this hour, as we sit at the feet of our Lord and hear His Word. O Lord, answer our prayer as we offer it in the name of Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, when we study the doctrine of the church in the New Testament, we find that the New Testament uses a variety of different metaphors to describe the nature and makeup of the church. The church is often described as the bride of Christ and Jesus himself as her husband. The church is described as the flock of God. Christ is the chief shepherd and the one who appoints under shepherds as well for her care. The church is described as the body of Christ where Christ is the head and we are the various members. We are the various body parts. Some of those body parts are visible and prominent. Some are obscure and their work is hidden, but all are necessary for the functioning of the body. The church is also described as the temple of God. 
Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. We are the living stones that are being built up together into a holy dwelling place of God. But another metaphor that Scripture uses to describe the church is the household of God. The family of God. With brothers and sisters and various members making up this household. Today I want you to think about this metaphor, the household of God. And I want you to think, what can this teach us about the nature and function of the church? I'll just mention, a household, of course, is made up of various family members. So one thing that this illustrates is that for the success of the household, the family members need to work together. They all have a part to play in the business or the flourishing of the household. In other words, a household is a place where the members of the household share some responsibility toward one another. The family members don't work together uh, to help out with you know, chores, yard work, upkeep, provision, child care. If the members of the household only looked out for themselves, then disorder and chaos would reign. In a healthy household, all of the members play a particular role. And they all have a particular responsibility to care for one another and to see to the greater good of the family as a whole. Well, this, of course, is a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be like as well. That's why we believe Scripture demands a place for church membership, a formalizing of our accountability to one another, a covenantal agreement and commitment that we are responsible for the good of one another and for the good of the church as a whole. At the end of our service today, we will welcome in new members as they make that covenantal commitment and we make it to them as well. But what what I want you to particularly see is that the order of the church as a household really is what this letter is all about. And I'm going to be coming back to this in the weeks and months ahead. We see this here in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. The structure and order of the church is why Paul writes this letter. And all throughout this letter, he uses the household metaphor as kind of a guiding principle. So if we think about this, what is it, perhaps all else, above all else, what is it that, that is critical to a right ordering of a household? Well, Paul's first priority in establishing the order of a household is proper leadership. In fact, whether we're talking about a home or whether we're talking about a nation or whether we're talking about a business, good leaders are absolutely essential. Think of the prosperous nations or the successful companies or, or even the vibrant churches that have been brought to ruin because of poor or wicked leadership. If we think about this in relation to a family, even in our own day, The stable family is the most critical component of a healthy and stable society. I know we live in a day where poverty and racism and oppression and and, and inequality gets all of the press. That's what people like to talk about. But more fundamental than all of these things is the epidemic of, of broken homes. 
Scripture and the light of nature teach us that the father is the head of the home. He is the leader of the marriage and of the family. And study after study after study shows that when there's no father in the picture, crime, drug use, depression, suicide, unemployment, homelessness, rates skyrocket. When the divine order of the home is lacking, the entire home suffers and society as well suffers. And that's kind of what is the background here of Paul's instruction to Titus. We know from the situation in Crete that the household is under threat. They're facing dangers from false teachers. They're facing dangers from a wicked culture around them. But the first and most critical step to combating these things is godly and stable leadership. It's interesting, we're going to come back to this in the weeks ahead, but when describing leadership, Paul uses three different terms to describe a pastor. Elder, overseer, and God's steward. Elder is one who has seniority. It's like like a patriarch in the household. An overseer is one who manages a household. A steward is the one whom the master has put in charge of the household to handle its affairs. So they all kind of appeal to this household metaphor. I mentioned this simply. I want to illustrate that Paul has this metaphor of the household in mind when he seeks to strengthen the church. And so he begins in verse 5 by setting the household in order by detailing the qualifications for godly leaders in God's household. And even more than this, as we will also consider today, The qualifications to serve as a leader in God's household begin with a man's character and life in his own household in relation to his wife and to his children. So this pinpoints what I want you to see today. For an orderly and healthy, faithful, flourishing church, godly leadership is essential. And since the church is the household of God, it is a man's character in his own home that is fundamental to his service in God's church. The divine order of the home has a lot to teach us about the proper divine order of God's church. So I want to consider three things out of this passage. Three things today. First, I want you to see that godly leadership is essential to fulfilling the Great Commission. We're going to start broad. Godly leadership is essential to fulfilling the Great Commission. In verse 5, Paul says that he left Titus in Crete so that he might put what remained into order. To understand what he means here, we need to take a step back and consider the wider missionary strategy of the New Testament. The missionary strategy of the New Testament begins where? The Great Commission. In Matthew 28, right before ascending to his father's throne, Jesus commands his disciple, and by extension, he commands the church to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. What does this look like on the ground? Well, I think we get a particular picture of this in the book of Acts, and especially with the Apostle Paul. What is Paul's missionary strategy in the book of Acts? Well, he would go into a city and begin preaching the gospel. He would start with the synagogues, or he'd start in the religious centers or gatherings of the city. 
And then those who believed that gospel or listened to it or were interested in, in it, he would disciple and instruct and gather them together into a church, typically a house church in someone's home. He would disciple them in the word. But the final step of that is that he would appoint leaders. He would appoint elders, pastors to carry on this work, so, uh, discipleship, so that he could then go to another city and start all over again. Great Commission doesn't stop with conversion. Great Commission has in mind teaching, making disciples, teaching them to observe everything that Christ commanded, which is a lifelong process. Well, that's exactly what we're kind of jumping into the middle of here. With these words, I left you in Crete, we see that Paul had at one point been on Crete, the island of Crete with Titus. They had had apparently some success in evangelism there. It seems as though there were churches all over the island, an island that at that time had at least uh, 20 cities on it. But because, as he says elsewhere, um, an elder must not be a recent convert, um, the church should not lay hands um, on anyone too quickly, it, 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 it's, it's, it seems as though Paul has to leave for some reason. Has to leave before elders are in place, before there had been enough time. And so he leaves Titus there to take care of these matters. Now, I point this out, not just so we understand the context of Titus, but also because, brethren, this is the pattern in our day as well. True evangelism and the goal of biblical missions always has an eye to the planting of churches. It doesn't matter how many people we get to confess faith in Christ or how many hospitals and orphanages we build, as important as those things are, the Great Commission isn't complete until local churches are established and indigenous elders are raised up. And this is true foreign in foreign missions, but it's also true domestically as well. I mean, just think about how this church came to be. Six years ago, I was set apart by the church in Clarksville to come here and preach and teach and disciple. And it was very slow going at first, but three years into the work, we formed a body of believers. We began to put things into order. I was called as pastor. Deacons were raised up as well. And now today, this process is continuing as we're preparing to call uh, additional elders. And we're continuing to welcome members as well. I say this so that you see the pattern, but I also say this because, brethren, just to be honest, it's about time for us now to start looking out there. We must not stop just with the establishment of this church. Our duty then now is, once this church is established, to replicate this process. If we care about the Great Commission, we won't stop here, but we will pray and pursue and prepare to send out others and plant other churches, both foreign and domestically as well. But that's a, another sermon for another day. Coming back to Titus here, the point I simply want to make is that despite how Paul and Titus had evangelized and seen converts there in Crete, their job wasn't finished. When Paul says, I left you there to put what remained into order, it could also be translated as to set right the things that are lacking. 
There was something lacking in the missionary task before them. There was something lacking in the groups of Christians and churches that had developed there. And what was lacking was godly leadership. Godly leadership that leads to a well-organized and flourishing household of God in service to fulfilling the Great Commission. Godly leaders are essential to the fulfilling of the Great Commission. But secondly... Godly leadership is essential to the flourishing of the church. Godly leadership is also essential to the flourishing of the church. If we move from Paul's missionary strategy to the situation on Crete, again, we realize that, or we see once we read the epistle, that the evil culture, the false teachers around them, were apparently wreaking havoc on the church. What was urgently needed then? What was urgently needed was godly men to both teach the gospel and model the gospel. Not just a preacher, not just someone who can spin a phrase, not just someone who can rightly divide the word of truth and keep, you know, uh, instill in people um, the principles of the gospel, but not just a godly man either, not just a saint, but both. A preacher to refute false teachers and encourage the congregation. And a godly man man, to model this. To live it out. To live by example. This is why Paul says here, I left you to appoint elders in every town. Thinking about the word elder, it's actually the Greek word presbyteros. There we go. You can probably hear it. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. You know, the reformers kind of uh, reformed this ecclesiology, this plurality of elders, this doctrine of that. uh, And then they became known as Presbyterians because they emphasized that. But simply put, uh, the word elder simply refers to an older man. That's all it means. Elder, like an elder man, an older man. The roots of this come from the Old Testament, where in Jewish communities, it was the elder men who governed the city. It was the older, wiser men who, if you recall reading the Old Testament, they would gather at the city gates and enforce justice. But in the New Testament, this is picked up on not, not to refer to someone who's advanced in years, but to someone to refer to a man who's advanced in spiritual maturity and wisdom. So the term elder points to a man's spiritual maturity. And that's what Paul goes on to detail here with these qualifications. It's not charisma. It's not personality. It's not communication skills. It's not organizational skills. It's not even leadership skills that the church needs. It doesn't need a CEO or a face of the organization or a community organizer. It's godliness that matters. It's character that matters. It's spiritual maturity that matters alongside the giftedness to teach and refute error. Sound doctrine, sound living, both together exemplified in a man is what qualifies him to be a leader in Christ's church. Notice as well, Paul says, appoint elders in every town. God's model for church leadership is that each church is to have a team of overseers. It's a plurality of elders that most specifically leads to the flourishing of the church. You know, there's safety in numbers. 
There's maturity and well-roundedness found in a diversity of gifts. There's no perfect leader. Every man has different strengths and weaknesses. In fact, every man has different strengths and weaknesses related to the things on this list as well. But there is health and safety and flourishing in the church when there's a plurality. Just like in a household, so goes the husband and father. So goes the wife and children for good or for ill because that is part of the framework of creation. In the same way, so goes the leadership in the church. So goes the people. Godly leadership is essential to the flourishing of the church. Now all that's really just kind of just background to get to our main point today. And that's with our third point. And we'll devote most of our focus to it. Thirdly, godly leadership in the home is essential to godly leadership in the church. Godly leadership in the home is essential to godly leadership in the church. <clears throat> After stressing the need for godly leadership, Paul now goes on to detail these qualifications. Who's fit to lead? And, you know, I hope it, I hope it goes without saying here that Scripture is always our guide in this. You know, we live in a day where the qualifications for leadership in Scripture are regularly ignored, regularly disobeyed. There's the ordination of women. There is the emphasis on personality and charisma or communication skills or pragmatism. These things place as a higher priority than what Scripture says. But these things usurp Christ's rule in His own church. These things, when we, when we go beyond the bounds of Scripture, we are saying we are wiser than God. We know better than He does. Scripture must be our guide. But note a few things here as we jump in. Uh, note that this is not a comprehensive, or um, yeah, it's not a comprehensive list of pastoral character and qualifications. It's kind of a broad overview. It hits the high notes, as it were. One reason we know this is because there's also a similar list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but the list is different. There are some slight differences there. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. We have it in two different places, and the words differ because it's not meant to be prayed word for word, even though there's great benefit in that. I don't want to deny that. But it is a guide for prayer. This is a guide. This is uh, hitting the high notes of what constitutes Faithful, godly leadership. Also note that Paul doesn't write this list as if Titus was uninformed about what, you know, constituted godly leadership. Paul writes this list really to give Titus apostolic precedence and authority. And I emphasize this because it wasn't just Titus alone who was responsible for appointing elders. It was the church's responsibility. This list is ultimately meant to be a guide for the people in the churches. As we see in other parts of the New Testament, the church is called to choose from, their, from among their own midst who will be, who meets these qualifications and who ought to be appointed to leadership. This is important for our ecclesiology. And it's also important because, you know, we don't need to look at Titus or any one man as, as a bishop or a pope. 
It's not up to any one person to decide for themselves who does or does not meet these qualifications. A man may feel called to the ministry. He may believe with every fiber in his being that he ought to be a pastor. But that call is subject to the evaluation of the church. Someone, on the other hand, may feel the particular man is or is not qualified for ministry. But again, it's not up to one particular person. It is subject, ultimately, to the body corporate. Well, how do I get that from here? One reason we know this is because what Paul begins with in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? Another way of translating it might be uh, blameless. What does this mean? Well, I hope you, I hope you know, hope you agree that it doesn't mean that a man ought to be perfect or even faultless. Uh, for then, only the Lord Jesus Christ would be qualified to serve as a pastor. <coughs> it certainly doesn't mean that a pastor doesn't have weaknesses, or that he isn't open to criticisms, or that he doesn't have sins that he also battles from time to time. You know, even the Apostle Peter had to be rebuked for falling into sin. Even the Apostle Paul had his critics from inside the church who questioned his qualifications, not to mention of how Jesus was attacked. Rather, the, the above reproach means free from public accusation. It's a term with legal connotations. It means that the man isn't chargeable with a pattern of unrepentant sin. There is no obvious evidence to accuse him of living a life that is inconsistent with the gospel. The pattern and the integrity of his life demonstrates that he not only believes the gospel, but he lives it. But one implication of this is that leaders and the lies that they live are subject to the probing and the evaluation of the church. Above reproach is a term that calls for the public evaluation of a man. Notably, of course, from those within inside the church. So again, it is the church as a whole, not one individual. It's the church as a whole that determines whether or not a man is above reproach. But if we want to get even more specific here, uh, the grammar indicates that above reproach most specifically refers to the next two characteristics that are listed. Who he is toward his wife, who he is toward his children. To put it another way, a godly leader is one who is above reproach in his leadership and love in the home. First, he must be above reproach as the husband of one wife. Now, we need to be careful how we take this. Sadly, the church is rife. The history of the church is rife with misunderstandings and misapplications of this verse. So, I want to start with what it does not mean. This does not mean that a man, that an elder, must be married. It's a superficial reading of this phrase. It misunderstands Paul's point here, and it misunderstands Paul's point in other places. It's Approaching the word, uh, the, uh, uh, it's approaching the text, bib, uh, uh, what, what would we say here? Um, not theologically, but in the more of a term of a biblicist, the bare wooden literalism of the text. 
I say this because if we took that meeting, we also have to say that having multiple children is necessary as well, given the next verse. I also say this because, as you know, both Jesus and Paul were not married, so that would kind of be awkward. No other explanation is given for this rather obvious inconsistency. I also say this because Paul commends singleness in ministry in 1 Corinthians I also say this because the phrase husband of one wife is used uh, uh, to, uh, in other places in the New Testament uh, in its reverse as well. The wife of one husband, um, in a sense that it could not mean that, would make it in, um, unintelligible. And such a position would, would also mean that widowers were disqualified. If your wife died, you couldn't be a pastor. Does not mean that. Cannot mean that. Furthermore, I also hold that it does not necessarily prohibit men who've been divorced. Please don't all walk out at once. There's some fundamentalists who believe very strongly in that regard. I'm not going to go into all of that today, but that's just not Paul's point here. The Bible provides legitimate grounds for divorce in some cases. The question, if a man is divorced, would be, is he above reproach in regarding the circumstances of his divorce? It is possible, although, yes, admittedly, it's probably rare, but it is possible to be a husband of one wife and above reproach in his marriage, and yet his wife sins against him and divorces him. So I just throw that out there without giving you the full argument for it, just for your thinking. I don't believe that can be sustained biblically as well, although the argument and the details are complex. In contrast to these things, what does this mean? Well, this qualification demands marital faithfulness and sexual purity. If he is unmarried, he lives a pure and chaste life. If he is married, then he is what we would call a one-woman man. This is a man who is committed to his wife. He is faithful to her or to his future wife. This is a man who doesn't flirt with other women. He doesn't put himself in questionable situations with other women. His life is free from things like internet pornography or television even. that Television that clearly intends to entice and draw his eyes and heart away to other women. This is a man who has one woman in his eyes, one woman in his heart, one woman in his arms, one woman in his desires. He's a one-man woman. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. There's no question about it. Let me also say here that this phrase doesn't necessarily... um, or actually, used to say, this phrase doesn't at all take into account who the wife is and what she's called to be. I've said it many times before, but there are no qualifications for a pastor's wife. Scripture does not call us to consider her when we evaluate him. It's not a package deal. I've heard it spoken of that way many times by search committees. Well, who's his wife? Does she play the piano? Is she good with children? Can she run this part of our, uh, of our program? We're getting a package deal with a husband and the wife. That is a modern innovation that seeks worldly success so often rather than spiritual success. As long as a man 
who leads her in love, as he's called to in the gospel, he meets the qualification, no matter who she is. He is a one-woman man. How he treats his wife is how he will treat the bride of Christ. You can look at how a man treats his wife, talks to his wife, counsels his wife, listens to his wife, shepherds his wife, and know how he will treat the church. The other qualification related to this, verse 6, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, we need to be careful here. We need to approach these words with wisdom. Let me just say that in my personal experience in the church, uh, when someone doesn't like a pastor or an elder, or if they have something against a man for any reason, when they don't like him, the first place they go is his children. I've seen it so many times, and it's sad. It's the easiest place to go. No father is perfect. No child is perfect. Every home has its struggles and its problems and its weaknesses. This, this is a qualifications that people can be just savage about, and it terrifies pastors typically. <clears throat> so I want to caution you to be careful as we work through this. First thing we ought to note is that the word children refers to children still in the home. In other words, under the father's care, which in that day was still about 14 years old, average age of of, of women in that, in that first century Rome. They got married on average at the age of 14. This is referring to children in the home. It does not refer to children um, who they become after they leave the home. Even Jesus had disciples that turned away from him. The next difficulty here is that Paul refers to these children as believers. What does this mean? How do we understand this? Does this mean that a pastor's children must be Christian? Christians, I should say. Well, that's certainly hard to square with the doctrine of election. That's hard to square with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he taught about the household. If you want to learn the household, the theology of the household in the New Testament, don't start with household baptisms. Start with Jesus when he says, I have come to put man Again, father against son, daughter against mother. The enemies of a man will be the enemies of his own household. The gospel divides households. It would even be more difficult to, to, uh, um, to understand this phrase as believers when we consider that, you know, when do we know whether or not our children are believers? I've rarely met Christian parents, uh, excuse me, the children of Christian parents who won't profess faith from a very early age. Rarely. And, and truthfully, in my experience, I don't think we ever really know the true state of our children until they leave home and are faced with the enticements of this world. I don't think we ever really know for sure until that. Because who we are, who they are deep down, isn't revealed until they're tested, until they're squeezed. It would be impossible to say children must be believers. How would we ever really truly know? Not to mention that how there has been great damage done to children 
who are forced to profess faith or be baptized just so their dad can be a pastor. How do we understand this then? Well, note, if you're reading the ESV there, there's a big fat footnote. Mine, it's, it's letter 5, right there by believers. It's because, if you look down and you see what that means, it says, or faithful. That's because the word used here can mean, and often does mean, either or. Sometimes it does refer to believers. Sometimes, and frequently, even in the pastoral epistles, it simply means faithful. Which is why other versions, like the KJV, for example, translate it as faithful. So let me ask you this question. When we come to a word that can and often means two different things, how do we determine its usage? Context. Context is always the key. Bob is running down the street. You know, maybe you picture a middle-aged man going on a run. And then I say to you, my washing machine is running. Or my nose is running like it's been running all week. You're not going to picture a washing machine or a nose spouting legs running down the street. Context gives you what you need to determine the use of running. It's the same thing here. And so, what is the context? 1 Timothy 3 is a parallel passage. Qualifications for an elder. Paul says there that an elder must have children who are submissive and under his control. Since faithful is another way of saying that they are obedient, faithful to the Father's authority, this seems to fit. But the second hint from the context comes in the explanatory note. They are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery refers to things like drunkenness, sensuality, fornication, recklessness. It's used to describe the prodigal son. Insubordination means disobedient, rebellious, unwilling to be under authority. It shows us that Paul has behavior in mind, not belief. He's not saying that the elders' children must be Christians, but rather that they must be submissive and obedient and responsive to their father's rule. The question is, does the father have the heart of his children? Do they love him? Do they respect him? Do they follow him? Does he lead them? This is not a demand for the pastor's kids to be perfect. And, and you know, we, haven't we seen unspeakable damage done to pastor's kids when they're burdened with unrealistic expectations to be perfect? I mean, there's a reason that, that PK or pastor's kids is like a, like a pejorative nowadays. They, they frequently and easily go off the deep end because we put burdens on them they're never expected, they, they can never bear themselves, and then one day it explodes. Not perfection, but faithful and submissive. But again, the emphasis is on not the kid, but the, but the children, but the father. And you learn about the father, uh, excuse me, the man's leadership in the church by looking how he leads his children. And, you know, in this respect, I've seen, just, just to be honest, it's easy for parents, it's easy particularly for fathers to enforce behavior by fear. And threatening. I've seen it many times. I've seen, 
I've seen pastor's kids walk into church dressed immaculately, single file as if they're marching to battle, quiet and motionless in the pew for hours on end, and yet five minutes with them shows that they're terrified. The only way they're acting that way is because they have a domineering father at home. That's not what Paul has in mind. This is a call to look at how a man parents his children. If he is domineering at home, if he is harsh with them at home, if he is not patient with them at home, if he's demanding at home, he's going to be that way in the church as well. And if he fails to take responsibility at home, if he's indifferent, if he doesn't care, if he doesn't punish evil, correct sin... Shepherd them. He will fail to take responsibility to lead in the church as well. The picture here then is a man who manages and leads his family with influence, with gentleness, with grace, with dignity, with intentionality, with compassion. You are to look at the qualities of a good and faithful father. You look for those qualities in a pastor even if his children don't turn out exactly how you would prefer. Again, even Jesus had a disciple that turned away from him. God himself, as Father in Isaiah 1, says, I was a father to you, Israel, but you have rebelled against me. We look for patterns. We look for how a man shepherds his family. Let me also say that we also look, you know, um, over time. Every parent knows that, that children go through difficult phases. The terrible twos, the teenage years. I've seen it before. I saw a man who had five children. His youngest was three. And they had difficulty controlling this young one in worship. His wife, of course, he was preaching, and his wife was caring for five young children in the pew. And somebody challenged his qualifications for a pastor because his three-year-old's conduct in worship. That's not right. That's not right. You can't look at the behavior of a toddler, typically, and make objective conclusions about a man's parenting. There hasn't been enough time. We need to be careful not to look at isolated incidents, narrow periods of time, but to take account of the whole, the big picture. Not just focusing on one child, but looking at the children as a whole, together. And doing so in a way that does not insert our own cultural preferences about whether they're homeschooled or not, how they dress or not, whether they share the same convictions or not, or how they meet our standards of what is respectful or not. Not perfections, but patterns. And not as though we alone determine who or is not qualified, but the corporate church as a whole looks at this and says, is the man blameless in regard to his marital faithfulness and sexual purity? Do the children of, a man, of the man bear witness of someone who leads and loves them well? Because if a man can't leave his, lead his family, And if a man is not faithful to his wife, neither will he lead or be faithful in the church, the household of God as well. Well, brethren, we've gone long enough and we need to draw this to a conclusion this morning. I just want to leave you with one thing. 
There is something about the divine order of the household that teaches us about the divine order of the church. They are connected, which is why a man's character in the home is necessary to evaluate him in his fitness to lead in the church. But even still, note this. If you're wondering, well, how really does this apply to me? Okay, we need to evaluate Pastor Rob. Okay, get that. But you need to know this first. There is nothing here, nothing more here than what is expected of any other faithful Christian. All of us in Christ are called to live above reproach. All husbands and wives are called to be entirely devoted to one another. All children, excuse me, parents are called to lead and love their children. This is how we don't just look out at others and, and put a critical eye upon one man as another elder, but we begin first by looking here. This was written for our instruction. This was written for your instruction as well. This is what God calls you to as well. Whether you're single or married, whether you have children or not, you are called to be above reproach, to be pure sexually, to be loving and intentionally loving toward those you have authority or influence over. This passage is for you. Even as elders are called to model it most specifically. And yet at the same time, don't look at any part of this passage apart from how this epistle begins. I said it last time, it's the foundation of everything else Paul writes. The godliness in the home, the life that is above reproach, starts with the knowledge of the truth. It is fueled by the hope of eternal life. It's commanded within the context where all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And it's brought to us and accomplished in us through the grace and the peace that comes from God who is our Father. And through Christ Jesus who is our Savior and our Husband. We must not look at anything right here apart from that critical gospel context. Everything that God requires of us, He gives us freely in Him. Take comfort in this, brethren. May God write these words upon our hearts. Amen. Let's pray.